Welcome to Shooting the Frisbees with your hosts, Jake and Randy, discussing all things freestyle frisbee and whatever else that comes up. Welcome to Shooting the Frisbees with Jake and Randy. Hey, Jake, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you, Randy? You know, I'm I'm hanging in there. I'm, I'm putting one foot in front of the other in these very interesting times. But uh, one thing is that I'm really missing jamming. I, I uh, didn't realize just how important jamming is to my my physical health, but also my mental health, kind of something that helped clear my mind. Yeah, I totally feel the same way. Like if I don't jam, I get this angst. Like I just got to go do something and it's, I can do something. I go on a bike ride. It doesn't really solve the problem. I still have that same level of anxiety that jamming takes care of. Jamming really blasts out the carbons, as I like to say, and kind of clears the whole mind. But, you know, a really cool thing that did happen since we've last talked is uh, the Tiny Room Challenge, the battle format that Daniel O'Neill conceived, organized, brought it to life, commentated. I mean, the whole thing was just really amazing and felt like, you know, during these times of separation, it really brought the whole community together. And uh, the format was really compelling. You know, nobody really knew how this was going to come off. And it was just off the charts fun and watching all of our all of our peeps kind of go at it in a competitive format was just really, really cool. And, you know, huge props to Daniel O'Neill for making that happen. Totally. Daniel deserves a ton of uh, a ton of props for what he did. I mean, he he thanked all the people that helped him, and there were a lot of people that helped, and thanks to them too. But he had the reins. He drove it. He made it happen. He was the commentator. He was doing the technical work at the same time, playing the music. I mean, it's a ton of work, and it's really awesome that he did it. And he nailed it. Man, he's running the show. It was so much fun to watch. And part of it was just the way he was engaged with the audience, like talking to the competitors, talking to the audience, throwing it over to Freddie, getting the judge's opinion. He's just, man, it was fun. Yeah. I mean, his enthusiasm just like came out of the screen. So this is just sort of, you know, a sidebar of this that I had somebody who was not a Frisbee player at all that I said, hey, you should check this out. And the first thing that they commented on after it had done and said, wow, that commentator was really good. <laughs> I was <laughs> yep. like, yeah. So it just didn't, you know, it didn't resonate with Frisbee players. It resonated also with just kind of the ordinary person who was checking it out. So that was that was pretty cool. And again, yeah, Daniel nailed it for sure. Yeah. The competition was also really pretty amazing like we saw some really unique and interesting things like ryan bounced the disc off the wall to a move and then gary arbach did those four disc rolls like nobody yeah. sees or does stuff like that on a regular basis but then when we got into the finals like people were shredding that's championship level stuff that that people were doing inside tiny rooms i don't know how they do it exactly inside tiny rooms so you know congrats to pablo azul and juliana corver for you know taking the the gold, but yeah, the competition was such high level that it, it inspired me to actually go down into my basement and I kind of tried to simulate that I was competing and I'm going to do it. And you really don't realize how difficult it is. Like you got 10 seconds, you got to put in some content that's valid and you know, you got to get off with a good throw. Like what if the throw goes off? So, I mean, I was like maybe able to do, you know, 60% something good in Hain that would have been there against 40% where I struggled or it bounced off my leg or something. So 
way more difficult than you think. And amazing how many people were pulling it off, especially towards the end. And like when Pablo and Andres Rivera were going at it, that was a best of seven. And for the most part, they filled each one of those battles with super hane stuff. So uh, uh, that was just fun. I'm smiling from ear to ear right now, just yeah. reliving it with you. Me too. I know. I, I got up early and watched the entire thing both days and felt... And- Felt both entertained and inspired. It was super cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I consumed the whole eight hours myself, you know, but I'm also a homer, but it was compelling just to the regular public as well. So very cool. Totally. So uh, let's shift gears and talk about the interview that we have going on today. I'm super excited about this episode um, because this person is one of my favorite one of my favorite jammers, and I've known him since almost the beginning of my career. He's a recent inductee into the Hall of Fame. He is a member of Team Side Out that was one of the strongest co-op teams for many years in the 90s. Uh, he was a FPA board member for many years as a competition director and had a ton of influence on how competition works and just running events. Maybe the most interesting thing is that he has named a ton of moves with some really creative, interesting names. I don't know how he does it, but he comes up with great names. So uh, I'd like to welcome to the call Skippy Jammer. Thanks for having me, guys. It's a thrill to be here. I'm a big fan of yours. I follow all of your podcasts. It's an honor. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Skippy. It's uh, great to have you on the call. You were one of my earliest inspirations in my freestyle career, too. So it's wonderful to get to talk to you and hear some stories that I've heard before and hopefully hear a bunch of new ones, too. So um, the first thing that I wanted to ask you about is the Modesto Mutants, because I've I've heard about them, but I have no idea who they are or where they came from. So can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I I didn't grow up in Modesto, but um, I came of age there. Um First girlfriends, first time partying, doing all kinds of wild, youthful things. So I really came of age living in Modesto, a fascinating place to have come from. Consider that the motto for the city is on the way to where you're going, which implies <laughs> not coming to Modesto to be here. Just keep moving. There's nothing to see here. Just keep moving along. I was living in Modesto, and certainly for Modestans or Modestoids, then one of the great virtues of living in the city of they have they have fantastic parks. They have there's parks everywhere, and there's old trees, and there's big exp- expansive playing fields. So that was kind of our sanctuary. Uh, graduating out of high school, I had a group of friends, and we would go to the park, and we play music and we had a band with not a band but a group of us and we we um, made up these parody or satire songs we called ourselves uh, mutation foundation and we had songs making fun of people and we would perform them at parties and stuff like that so it was um me and another guy who ended up being incredibly influential to me, and that's Evan Furtado. He's no longer with us, but when I first met Evan, that changed my life because he saw things differently. That put me on a new track. I started to look at stuff differently. And some of the things he introduced to me was, well, exotic cars. You know, we would drive around town and do Porsche spotting where that was what we did. You know, we counted Porsches. It was a competition between us. And and then there was also things like um, Frisbee came into play where he would say, hey, you know, let's go to the park and now let's start throwing Frisbees around. We didn't know much about it. It was something that we started to do. And then also satire, language, making fun of people was a big part of it, using logic against 
big stupid football players at parties and then they try to beat us up because they they know they're being insulted but they can't figure out what we're saying to, to actually insult them that was just how we amused ourselves so we started to get into frisbee a little bit more i was really into rock climbing at the time it was in close proximity to yosemite and so my entire obsession was with rock climbing but i wasn't that good at it. I was good at doing it, but I didn't understand the risk factor and what was really at stake. I just liked the adrenaline rush of it. And then I started to get into Frisbee. And then my mother comes up to me one day and she goes, son, what would happen if you made a mistake rock climbing? Oh, well, mom, uh, really bad things. You could fall, you die, all kinds of really dramatic stuff. She goes, what would happen? What happens when you drop a Frisbee? I go, you pick it up. And you throw it again. She goes, I want you to think about that. And I go, is she trying to tell me something? <laughs> so that was kind of an example of me not realizing at the time what was ahead. But then, you know, there's nothing else to do in Modesto. So we just go down to the park. We throw the Frisbee around. And then what happened was Evan shows up with Stancil Johnson's book, Frisbee, A Practitioner's Manual and Treatise. And so we go, whoa, what is this? So we would literally go through this page by page like it's it's the holy the holy grail the bible if you will each word was sacred and we gently turned the page disc golf oh okay freestyle so we started to do freestyle how we thought everybody else in the world was doing it so and it was this really contorted really bizarre thing with uh, restricted catches our intention was not to be able to catch it every single time. It was when we did catch it, it was the most sensational catch that had ever happened in the history of the world. That was how we thought we were supposed to be playing. So Muck Young shows up. Michael Young was the older brother of one of uh, the, the group of friends that we were in. And he was living in San Francisco at the time. He was part of the San Francisco ballet troupe. And he was going over to Golden Gate Park and he was a juggler. And so the jugglers at that time were really good. And one of the things that they did was they could tip Frisbees and they could throw them really far. My guess is they were influenced by the Berkeley Frisbee group, but I don't know that specifically. It's just, you know, it kind of makes sense. So Muck developed these skills and he could throw it very, very far. And so he shows up to one of our little impromptu Frisbee sessions at the park and it, oh my God, just blew the lid off of what we thought was possible. So then Muck goes, hey, there's a tournament up at Sonoma State, uh, and this is 1976. So we all gathered into the car, went up there, and then from that point forward, it was just, oh my God. It's like I had no idea what an impact was going to have on me, but seeing other people playing, and um, that was the revelation to me. Now also, keep in mind how I was describing how we were playing at the time. So people would come up to us, and they're equal parts disgusted and attracted to us because we weren't beautiful flowing moves that were going following logical pro progressions we were like started to call ourselves the modesto mutants again after our little guitar band that we had in the park so the, the name modesto mutants kind of stuck we had a brief attempt at legitimacy where we made some t-shirts and started to call ourselves the frisbee flow of modesto but that didn't last very long um we were exposed for what we really were shortly after that. So who was at that first tournament? So like, who were the people that you were first being exposed to? 
Well, there was a young Evan David, a young Corey Basso. Don Bond was a big guy. Um, uh, Don the Rocket Hoskins. I can't remember if Stork was there. And then Dreamer was there. Probably Al Bonapane. All, all kinds of these. Uh, Victor Malafronte absolutely was there. And, and as was John Kirkland. So those two guys were they were a centerpiece of what was going on, and part of the reason my mind was blown so so much was because of those two guys. Yeah, and what year was that? 1976, uh, October 76, I think. So, uh, were you nail delaying at that point, or was this still all speed flow? Oh, so this was this was a period that I would call pre-Z's, where nobody threw with the intention of throwing a lot of Z's. That was just not that's not part of what the endeavor was. It was to do. The nose up air bounces, and that's all you wanted to do was throw a perfect air bounce. It was in search of the perfect turn. If you're a skier, here it's in search of the perfect air bounce to your partner. And so it was just throwing these air bounces back and forth, and then you do some tips and you do a quick little uh, delay. Nothing was in the rim. You do a little uh, flip out, and then you spin, you catch it. It was all very basic rudimentary but again it was pre-z's so you're, you're yeah. bringing it in yeah. you're tipping it you're zipping catch it's almost like yeah. just a tiny little extension of speed flow and interesting that evan david was there because he was like you know he was the flow king you know he was yeah. you know great lines and everything and you're talking about you know you and evan for for Tato being kind of like going for stuff that's all twisted and gnarled like what were some of the catches you guys were trying then well, we would, would do things like um, flying death flare dances. We were doing uh, flying death flame dances, uh, grunt trailers, um, uh, double flares, uh, F-flexes. You have to describe what some of these are because the names are amazing. <laughs> I mean, what's the trailer one? I never, what was grunt, that? Grunt trailer. Grunt trailer. Yeah, grunt. You have to. Grunt trailer. You can't do this without grunting. So it's, um, what's the limbo thing where you go under the bar? Uh, you know that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the limbo. So you go underneath the bar and it gets really low. And so I got really good at it. Again, I was coming out of rock climbing. So I was incredibly strong. I had a great strength to weight ratio. And I could catch it maybe three feet off the ground without my shoulders touching the ground. And I remember showing it to Kirkland one time. And he looks at it and he goes, oh, I can do that. And oh, my God, it was just one of the most glorious moments in my life to see Kirkland flop on the ground and start writhing in agony. <laughs> I executed it perfectly right in front of him. That was an elevated moment for me. Oh, my God. Grunt trailers. I'm just thinking of Evan David seeing you guys. And, you know, the word grunt does not apply to any part of his game. No. So looking at you guys, just like, oh, my God, they really are Modesto mutants. <laughs> pretty accurate so moving on so 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 now so after um this that indian summer tournament in 76 then okay we go back into our you know into the darkness that is the modesto winter um tule fog you, we won't see the sun for until probably april late march and so then we're now we're subscribing to frisbee world magazine there's a tournament in santa barbara and it's in March. So our entire focus was on going to this tournament in Santa Barbara, March 77. And so we drive down there. And again, we have not seen the sun since October. So we have zero tan. Uh, we're just pasty white. We're skinny as runts. We, you know, we're, I don't even know if we look athletic. We just look like we're scrawny, crazy Frisbee people. And we show up on the field at Stork Field in Santa Barbara. And it's like, 
a sea of humanity and everyone is playing frisbee. And I, I can't describe accurately what that meant at the time because you're looking at the entire field and there's hundreds of people. I can't remember how many people were in the freestyle, um, how many teams there were. I think it was like 100 teams, something crazy like that. And so this was my very first competition, my very first tournament. And I'm playing with Andy Yates, one of the, the fellow Modesto mutants. So it was Muck Young, myself, Evan Furtado, and Andy Yates. The four of us was really the core of that group. And so Andy, or Droid as we called him, um, and I were playing. And so in the first pool, then I'm up against um, my two heroes, Tom Kennedy and Tom Shepard. They were in our prelim pool. We beat them. We win the pool. In the semi-pool, it's them again. It's also, I think, Kirkland and Jeff Jorgensen and also Stork and Nerve Calp. And we win the pool. Uh, uh, Droid and I win the semis. I also had the flu, and I was running a fever. I, I don't know what it was. It was over 100 degrees. So I was feeling like crap, but I was so energized and so adrenalized that we go into the finals. I think I just hit the wall, and we end up coming in fourth, which was completely fine. I mean, my God, it's like to even to make the finals was historic for me. So that's, at that point, that was the game changer. That was when I was in lock stock and barrel i the hook was in and I, I was never going back to climbing i was never going back to being a crazy skier i was never doing anything else and so my entire focus my entire life was now applied to girlfriends get in the way jobs get in the way frisbee <laughs> that's amazing that your first tournament that you go to with that deep of a field that you guys got fourth i mean that yeah. must have just rocked your world obviously it changed your life yeah. I mean, again, I can't even put it in context, even all this time later. And it was just such a profound impact on me. And our game wasn't that elaborate. I think it was just that we were good athletes and we, we had the, some fundamental skills and we, we were different. We had also moved on from the total mutation uh, trick catch thing to where we could now control it certainly more. And uh, we started to try to emulate people like Don Vaughn. So we were well served in studying Stork's game a little bit and trying to apply some of that to our game. So just from going to that 76 Indian summer, we were able to gather some information about how freestyle is played by normal people and tried to adapt some of that back to into our game. I was imagining that it was your mutant style that had you standing out and had you do well, but it sounds like you were, you were starting to conform back to the norm at that point. Yeah, I think we were, but not entirely. <laughs> the mutant was still alive. You were just needing yeah. to conform a little bit so that you could perform. Yes. Okay, so so now um, after that tournament, then Droid, Andy Yates, um, uh, he was a bit wayward. He lacked focus, and um, somehow he caught Stork's eye. And so he runs away from home, and he finds Stork down in L.A., and he doesn't have a job. He doesn't have anything else to do, but he loves playing Frisbee, right? Well, Stork, and one of the most gracious people you'll ever meet, saw something in Andy and said, yeah, sure, come on over. I think he even let him live with him for a while. He did a trackball commercial, and so Andy started to connect with Stork. So now we're looking at 1978, some tournaments, and so 77 goes into the books, and now we're looking at 78 Santa Barbara. So Andy goes, hey, so do you want to play with Stork and I? And I'm going, wait, what? Play with Stork in Santa Barbara? God, yes. And so Stork was one of my very first partners. So it was me, Andy Yates, and Dan the Stork Roddick. And we played wow. there, and we also played um, uh, Boulder 78 as well. And so that was really cool because now, you know, he was already, he was 
established as as a, a legend already and just to be able to pick his brain and 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 see how he, he presents himself and and how he plays the game all of that stuff was really uh, um had a big impact on me and in 78 you guys were trying to score points to go to the rose bowl right? yeah exactly right um but i i didn't make it to the rose bowl until 1980 but i was still trying um uh, for whatever reason, I think it was just like I couldn't catch my long MTA throws. And so my the flaw within my overall game was I could throw a 13.3 MTA, but it would hit my hand and pop out. So um, whenever I would catch it, it would be the longest MTA of the tournament. And I would always be able to throw a, a 13 plus MTA. If it doesn't go into my hand, then I'm not scoring points. So. Uh, I think finally I caught that long MTA in 1980, and that was what put me into the Rose Bowl. Wow, I would have thought that freestyle would have gotten you into the Rose Bowl. No, I was scoring on freestyle, but you needed to score in more than one event. So I was always scoring points in freestyle, but you know the rest I was lacking in. Yeah, so so 78, and then and then um, 78 goes into the books as well. Um, Went to some great tournaments, and again I was fully committed to this. 1979 rolls in, and um, there's nobody left in Modesto. Evan Furtado wasn't into it. He he got a full-time job. He was trying to save money to buy a house. Uh, Andy Yates goes into the into the Air Force. Um, Muck Young had moved to Davis to, to uh, go to grad school at UC Davis. So it was just me. And so then I started looking at the, the, the jamscape, if you will, where where was their frisbee? And so I had a girlfriend at the time, and she was enrolled at Chico State. So I would go up to Chico State to visit her, and I take the bus up there. Again, my whole world was just you know trying to find frisbee, and so I knew that there had to be some kind of frisbee activity in Chico, but I couldn't figure out where it was. So I go into the, the classic uh, college bar there in town, and I hear these people talking about yeah, there's this new thing that you can do with a frisbee. It's spin it on your nail. And I literally grabbed them and I go, where is this happening? And so they go, yeah, it's down at Bidwell Mansion. It's the intramurals. It's called Play Factory. It's like every Thursday. So I go down there. I see these guys doing some, some uh, trying some tricks on the sideline during their ultimate game. And it was Larry Imperiali and Alan Young and, and um, probably Carl Dobson. It was like all of these guys who would later become great friends of mine. I just literally walk up and said, hey, let me see that kid. And I started to show it to him. So then the Chico scene started to really take off from there because I was going up there consistently and I needed somebody to play with because there's nobody in Modesto. So that was my jam scene was I would just spend a lot of time up in Chico helping to nurture those guys, helping to inspire them. What was interesting about the, the Chico scene at the time was I was so much better than anybody that was there. When I would start to play, then they would all sit down except for one long-haired, clumsy kid had big paws, big feet, big hands, and he uh, had a droopy lower lip. He would never sit down. He was fearless. I go, wow, this guy doesn't look that good. I'm not so sure this is, you know, he should really be doing this or not. But then he started to get better because, again, he was so fearless. And the next thing I know, this guy was actually becoming good. And then I go, so what's your name again? He goes, my name's Larry. And I go, Larry Imperiali. Oh, my God. And so from that point forward, that's a characteristic of Larry Imperiali is that he is fearless. And he is not afraid to to try something, to put himself in a situation where um, perhaps he's not comfortable, but he's going to try to figure something out. 
And we became very close friends. And he, to this day, he's one of the closest friends I have in the entire world. So it all started with Larry being fearless and not being afraid to jam with me, even though I was so much better than him. Wow. I had no idea that you were a part of that seed of the Chico Airhead scene. I had no idea. Yeah, they told me I was, uh, quote unquote, the grandfather of the Chico scene. I wasn't a Chico Airhead per se, but I was an honorary member, certainly. Yes, Skippy. I want to echo your point about Larry Imperiali being fearless because he is fearless and he will try anything. And I'm not talking about just doing Frisbee stuff and learning new skills, but Larry will just jump into so many things and just say yes. And he's not a person who's going to say, no, I don't want to try that. That might make me feel uncomfortable. I relate this because there's this game that I like to play. It's an improvisational theater game, and it's called What Are You Doing? It's kind of like playing charades, but it's a lot more spotlight on you. And so it can be uncomfortable for folks. But Larry was like, yeah, I want to play that game. And he was so good at it. You know, he just leaned into it. Wait, what the... Talk about this game a little bit more. What do you do in this game? (laughs) What are you doing is an improvisational game where you have two people and they stand up in front of everybody. And one person says, what are you doing? And that person will say something. I'm shooting baskets. And the other person has to start shooting baskets, act like they're shooting baskets. And the person says, what are you doing? They cannot say I'm shooting baskets. They have to say something else like I'm tying a ribbon around a gift. And so that person has to start acting like they're tying a ribbon around a gift. And then you say, what are you doing? And they cannot say, I'm tying a ribbon around a gift. They have to say something different. So the idea is to go as fast as you can to get the person to mess up. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fun parlor game to do. Wow, that sounds super fun. Okay. So is there a story to what Larry did in that game? <laughs> he was just good at it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why I say he just he leaned into it. He said yes. And that was, you know, one of those things about him just being fearless and jumping right in. Yep. Totally. Yeah. Okay. Well, with that, I just want to say thank you to all of our supporters out there. Um, It's really great that you value what we do. And I feel like that the podcast and these live streams and the website is kind of something that keeps us together, which is something that we really need these days. I know I feel connected to the community through doing this. And so I'm glad that others support what we're doing. And I hope that others are out there feeling connected as well. And uh, I just want to say thanks. Yeah, here, here. And on that note, Jake, I will talk to you next time. Talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Shooting the Frisbees with Jake and Randy. To contact us or for more info, check us out at frisbeeguru.com. Home to Haynesville, Shooting the Frisbees, and live streaming freestyle frisbee. Oh, yeah!